looking at Acts chapter 2 today, verses 14 to 18. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it. If you don't have a Bible, I think the ushers will have some Bibles. You can just raise your hand and they'll bring one to you. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, then we want you to have this one. Just keep it. It's yours. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the scriptures. So Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, I'll be reading from the NIV translation today. It says this, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. The topic that I'm going to speak on today has to do with what I think maybe one of the most glaring and widespread omissions that the church has made and has persisted for centuries. And I believe that it's crucial that we get this one right. Now, I've preached on this before, not at Table Church, but Pastor Megan has preached on this before here. I've preached on it at previous churches that I've worked at. And I can tell you that um, this topic can stir strong emotions in people. In fact, each time that we've spoken on this, somebody's left the church, unfortunately, because they disagreed so strongly with our position. And you might be wondering, well, why in the world would you preach on something like if, if, if it is going to create some sort of a, you know, a division or that sort of thing? And I'll tell you why. It's because I think it's very important. I think it's very important. Today we're talking about women and men in church leadership. In the year 1848, women in this country did not have the right to vote or hold office, but there was a growing movement that was about to increase even more around women's rights. When it came time to hold the first women's rights convention in the country, they looked to the Wesleyan Church in Seneca Falls, New York, to be the location of this historic event. The convention resulted in what is now known as the Seneca Falls Declaration. It was more or less the kickoff to the women's rights movement. Clearly trolling on the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of Seneca Falls reads like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. As you can see, Wesleyans were on the front edge of the political reform movement for women's suffrage. Now, we're in week three of a series called Hearts on Fire, what it means to be Wesleyan. We're looking at some of the distinctives of what Wesleyans are. And in case you don't know, you're sitting in a Wesleyan congregation right now. Now, some of you are going, well, what in the world's a Wesleyan? Exactly. (laughs) That's why we're doing this right now. I want to hopefully inform you a little bit about what it means to be Wesleyan, but I want to be clear about a few things. I'm not trying to one-up any other denomination. In fact, that would be rather un-Wesleyan of me. One of our, I'd say one of our um, priorities is generosity of spirit towards, towards other Christians, other believers. Personally, uh, I see other denominations not so much as conflicts or disagreements as different emphases on the gospel. Um, and we obviously disagree about some things, but at the core, we all bring a different emphasis. How could any one group of people possibly encapsulate all that is in the gospel? And so I think that we need one another as the body of Christ in order to reach this world and different, different denominations have different abilities, skill sets, emphases, that sort of thing. 
And uh, I praise the Lord for that. And so I'm not trying to one-up any other denomination. I actually have a lot that I value in Presbyterians or Anglicans or Baptists, all sorts of different things. I'm also not trying to force anybody into anything here. I just want to inform you and hopefully inspire you about who we are, about the vision that God has laid before us as Table Church, which is a part of a denomination called the Wesleyan Church. I do think that the fundamental message is one that's worth sharing. But the, 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 the truth is the matter is that I don't even agree with every single jot and tittle of Wesleyan doctrine. And so you don't have to agree with everything in order to belong here. But I do hope that the fundamental message that you're finding through this series is one that inspires you and spurs you on towards the Lord. So the Wesleyan distinctive I'd like to talk about today is what I'm going to call mutual leadership. Mutual leadership. We believe that God's vision for the church is for all people, both women and men, to use their gifts to the fullest extent for his glory. We believe the Holy Spirit calls both women and men into all aspects of leadership and ministry in the church. Sometimes when I talk about this topic, people give me a funny look and and they say, why in the world are we spending time on this? But what they don't realize is they might be saying that sentence for opposite reasons. Some people are saying, why in the world do we need to talk about this? Because it's 2022, man. Of course women can lead. What is this, the Stone Age? Why are we dredging this kind of stuff back up? Let's just move on. But then there's other people who will say, why in the world are we talking about this? Have you not read the Bible? There's verses there that say women should be silent in the churches. And yes, I have read those verses. And no, my position is not because I want to ignore the Bible. It actually, become, it actually comes to me from the Bible, and I want to explain that to you today. And so, all I ask, because like I said earlier, this particular topic tends to generate some big emotions sometimes. I'm not entirely, well, I can understand why it would for women. I'm not entirely sure why men get so upset about this, but um, all I'm saying is that it's, we need to be generous about this, okay? I'm going to make a biblical case as to why women, or why Wesleyans favor mutual leadership today. And it's, you're going to find it's not because we ignore the Bible, it's because we take it seriously, So, as we've already seen, for much of history, women were not allowed to lead in this country, and the same could be said in the church. Not only were Wesleyans involved in promoting a woman's right to vote, Wesleyans were also involved in promoting a woman's calling to preach and to lead. From early on, Wesleyans have worked to demonstrate the ways the Bible encourages the full participation of both women and men in all areas of church leadership. In fact, in 1853, that's a long time ago, Antoinette Brown was pastoring a congregational church in New York, And her desire to be ordained was controversial within her denomination. And so she could not find anyone to preside over her ordination service. She had heard about the Wesleyans. She had heard that they favored women in ministry. And so she called Luther Lee, whom you heard about in week one. He was one of the founders of the Wesleyan denomination. And he came and he preached and presided over her ordination service. So Antoinette Brown became, as best we can tell, the first woman ordained to the ministry in the modern era. Eight years later, another woman named Mary Will was ordained in Illinois, making her the first woman in the Wesleyan denomination to be ordained to the ministry, and quite likely the second woman in the modern era to be ordained after Antoinette Brown. As you can see, Wesleyans were ordaining women in the 1850s. This is long before the liberal versus fundamentalist controversies of the early 1900s. This is 100 years before many mainline denominations uh, finally gave women full clergy rights. 
And so you can't really accuse Wesleyans of simply kind of going with the culture here, just succumbing to cultural pressure. That's not what they were doing. They were just accommodating cultural preferences in this. They were doing this long before it was even remotely common practice. They did it because they believed it was what the Bible compelled them to do. They believe that it's what the gospel compels us to do. But unfortunately, just because we have some bright spots in our history when it comes to this, that doesn't mean there isn't much work to be done. You see, while we may have been ordaining women for some time now, that doesn't mean that they've always been treated equally. That doesn't mean that it hasn't meant that they haven't had to fight for the recognition, the compensation, and the opportunities that are often afforded to men in similar positions and even though we say we value women leading in the church, the fact is today only a tiny percentage of the lead pastors in the Wesleyan church are women. And so we have a ways to go. Today's sermon is not only a matter of learning from our past success, but also from our weaknesses and failures. So that we might build a better future. It's an attempt to call ourselves to our own standards of empowering all people for the ministry. And so today, I want to give three big reasons why Wesleyans favor what I'm calling mutual leadership in the church. What's mutual leadership? It's where we believe that God can call and equip all people for ministry. And we want to discern that and encourage that because we think that the church benefits when people utilize their gifts of the Spirit to the fullest extent. We think the church needs both men and women leading in all aspects of ministry. I'm going to give you three reasons why that's true. The first reason is this. Mutual ministry is God's ideal for the church. It's God's ideal for the church. Early Wesleyans believed that the time had long passed where the church needed to recognize the bold truth that we read about in our passage today. Now, Peter stands up and in case you don't know the context here, the Holy Spirit was just poured out onto the church. People started speaking in different languages, and some people were like, oh, they're drunk. He's like, no, it's only nine in the morning. Something else is going on here. Here's what he says. He quotes the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So what you have here is an ideal, like a vision being painted of what the church needs to look like. When God shows up, when the Spirit comes, this is what it's going to be like. And so when he quotes this prophecy from Joel, Peter is making the point that God is making that happen now in his day. The, the, the day that Joel was envisioning was finally arriving through Pentecost. We're starting to see it occur among God's people through the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. God was pouring out his spirit on both men and women just as he said he would. It was happening at Pentecost. Now, if God pours his spirit out on somebody, if God empowers somebody, you don't, you don't say to them, oh, sorry, you're not allowed to use your spiritual gifts. You lack the requisite chromosome. That's, I'm not going to do that. That seems to me like quenching the spirit and that's what we do when we settle for less than God's ideal. And that's certainly not what we see the early church doing. Rather, it would appear that the church in Acts recognized God was unfolding a beautiful plan to dismantle the, the hierarchies that kept some groups down and other groups up. We see it again in Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, 
lot of times in that passage, we kind of think of it as, well, it's just kind of saying that God loves everyone the same. You know, like he doesn't distinguish between Jew and Gentile, male, female, when it comes to portioning out his love and his grace and salvation and that kind of thing. And I think that's true, but I also think Paul's saying something more. You see, Paul spent his ministry dismantling practices that kept Gentiles, non-Jews, out of worship with Jews. In fact, the temple was set up in such a way that if you're a Gentile, you don't get to go inside. You got to worship outside, sorry. However, here what we see is, is Paul th- is, is discerning that through the ministry of Jesus, that those walls had come down. Through the ministry of Jesus, now we're existing in a world where, theoretically, a Gentile could lead a congregation full of Jews. That hierarchy was erased. It was gone now. And similarly, women were once kept outside in a certain part of the temple. They were, a- or they were kept from full participation in worship. But just as the gospel destroys the hierarchy between Jew and Gentile, Paul is showing us that it does the same for the hierarchy between men and women. In the ancient world, patriarchy was the norm. Women were often without rights, without legal recourse, without a voice. Leadership was often one-sided. It was all about the men. That should indicate to us when we do see these verses like this just how countercultural they were. And I worry that sometimes churches, I'm not just talking about churches that don't believe in women in ministry, I'm talking about all churches, including Wesleyan churches, a lot of times our leadership structures resemble ancient Rome more than it does the vision of the New Testament. It's a one-sided leadership structure where men are free to lead anywhere, and women are limited to only a handful of roles. And we believe this is missing out on what God was accomplishing at Pentecost. We believe this is missing out on the full vision that God has for the church, which means the church must benefit from the ministry of both women and men, all people. God's ideal for the church is mutual ministry where both men and women are able to serve, able to lead in all areas of church leadership, and our job is to be a church that points people towards God's vision for humanity. So that was the first reason. It's the vision that we see in the Bible. The second reason is this. Mutual leadership is the reality of the New Testament. Just as we saw men and women leading together as the ideal for the New Testament, you see kind of this prophetic picture being painted of what things should look like in new creation, what things look like when the Holy Spirit shows up. And we saw that it was starting to happen. Well, what we're going to find out now is that it wasn't just starting to happen. It actually happens all over the place in the New Testament. There are examples of women performing almost every leadership role you can find throughout the New Testament. The resurrected Jesus first reveals himself to some women. They go and they tell the male disciples about the resurrection of Jesus. They were the first ones to preach the full gospel. Jesus is alive. You have Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus in the place of a male disciple and learns from her master, her teacher. There's a woman named Aquila who taught a more complete and accurate gospel to Apollos in Acts 18. The evangelist Philip had four daughters who prophesied in Acts 21. Paul mentions tons of house churches that met in women's homes and were likely led by these women. Whether it's the mother of John Mark in Acts 12.12 or Chloe in 1 Corinthians 1.11 or Lydia in Acts 16.40 or Nympha in Colossians 4.15 or Stephana in 1 Corinthians 16.15. In Romans 16, 1, Paul commends a woman named Phoebe, who he calls a deacon, from the church in Sincrea. I think one of the most overlooked women in the New Testament is the lady who is the recipient of the letter that we now call 2 John. It says this in 2 John 1, 
to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth. Now, it's tempting to think that her children are just her biological children. I mean, you could see why you would assume that until you realize that in both first and third John, that same Greek word for children is often used to refer to someone's disciples. And so what very likely is the case here is that this woman had some disciples, that this woman perhaps even led a church. Finally, we have Junia in Romans 16, verse 7, who along with her husband Andronicus, Paul refers to as, quote, outstanding among the apostles. Junia is so important that I'm going to spend a little time with her. Historically, much has happened that has obscured this important fact that Junia was an outstanding female apostle, right in the heart of the New Testament. See, for much of history, translators called her Junius. They added an S to her name, which might not seem like a big deal to us, but when you realize that Greek, the masculine ending of a noun is sigma, it's an S. And so when you stick an S on the end of Junia's name, now it's like she's a man. And for much of history, this is how our Bibles have read. In fact, if you have a Bible from before 1995, if you go look up Romans 16:7, there's a very good chance it will say Andronicus and Junius. It will masculinize her name. But that's simply a translation error. Listen, as far as we know, there was never a man named Junius. We have never discovered a writing or an inscription or a reverence in the ancient world to a man named Junius. Not to mention the fact that all of the earliest manuscripts for the first several hundred years of the church all say Junia. This was something that was added later on. She's a woman. Now, other times, translators have given Junia the correct gender. By the way, we've gotten that figured out now. You're hardly going to find any translations today that say Junius. They're all going to say Junia now because the scholarship is so overwhelmingly clear from the manuscript evidence. But other times, translators have given Junia the correct gender, but they've translated the verse in such a way to suggest that she's not actually part of the apostles. Instead of grouping Junia as part of the apostles, it will say, well, she's something like this. She's well known to the apostles, right? You see how the subtle difference there is she's well known to the apostles. That doesn't necessarily mean she is an apostle. And so we have two ways of translating Romans 16, 7. You have what we might call inclusive translations, this involves like the NIV, the NLT, the CEB, the KJV, where Andronicus and Junia are included within the apostles. It'll say something like, greet Andronicus and Junia, they are outstanding among the apostles. And then you have what you might call exclusive translations, the ESV, the CSB, the NASB 2020. It says, greet Andronicus and Junia, they are well known to the apostles. You see that difference? It's subtle, but it's important. It makes a big difference as far as... <laughs> where Andronics and Junia belong, right? Now, it can, it can seem confusing to encounter such a difference of translation on such an important topic. Like, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? If Junia was an apostle, that's kind of a big deal. As far as we can tell, apostle was about as high as it gets in, in New Testament church leadership. I mean, why do you think Paul spent so much time defending his apostleship? It mattered. That was a big deal. But while we can't wade into all the nitty-gritty grammatical and historical arguments surrounding the translation of this verse, I can tell you this. Both ancient scholars and the most recent scholars overwhelmingly affirm that Junia was a woman and an apostle. The fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, 
It says, indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. Most recently, in an article published in 2020, Ye John Lynn of Yale, a prominent Bible scholar, said in an article, said, all grammatical, morphological, and historical evidence point to a prominent woman apostle named Junia. Look, we've been deep in the weeds here. I just want to make sure I make my point clear. After centuries where the biblical evidence has been obscured, the truth has become plain to see, the overwhelming majority of scholars will now agree Junia was a woman, Junia was an apostle, Junia was an outstanding apostle, and we got to deal with that. She held a high office in the early church. And what we're seeing here is that rather than limiting the role of women in ministry, the New Testament takes what was already there and just blows it wide open, just expands it far beyond anything that we would have back then ever imagined. By the way, the Old Testament does this too. We just don't have time today. There are two verses in the New Testament where Paul commands women to be silent in the church. Two, two verses. Um, They're kind of tricky verses. Um, Some of the things in those verses are a little bit hard to understand. They're a little bit vague as far as what exactly Paul was talking about or saying. We don't have time to dissect them today, but I can tell you that it is increasingly clear that Paul is saying these things in response to a local concern happening within those particular congregations, that he probably had a good reason for saying the things that he did. But what he was not doing was he was not issuing a timeless, universal command about the capability of women to lead because of their gender. To do so would mean that Paul contradicts himself. He contradicts others in the New Testament, other New Testament writers, It would mean that he contradicts the work of the Spirit in pouring out his gifts on all people. Mutual leadership is the reality that we find in the New Testament. We find both men and women leading in many levels, almost all levels of church leadership. And the church was better off for it. But the final reason that we support mutual leadership in the church is this. We have seen the power of God's anointing. Joanne Lyon was the previous general superintendent of our denomination. Some of you met Wayne Schmidt a few weeks ago. He came and preached. He's our current general superintendent. It means he holds the highest level of leadership um, in our denomination. It's an elected position. Uh, previous to him was Joanne Lyon. Uh, for eight years, Dr. Lyon served as the general superintendent, but before that, she founded World Hope International, which grew to be one of the largest humanitarian relief organizations in the world. She's counseled multiple U.S. presidents, as well as other presidents from other countries. She's traveled the world over more times than you and I can shake a stick at. She was named one of Christianity Today's 50 Women You Should Know. She's seen miracle after miracle in her life. Just listen to her speak sometime and you will get, it'll be like drinking from a fire hose of miracle stories. She's seen the hand of God on her work in ways that we cannot imagine. Why? Because she's anointed. And I'm not going to stand up and say to somebody like that, no, doesn't count. Who am I to say that? Here at Table Church, I have benefited, many of you have benefited from the ministry of Pastor Megan. She's been obedient to her calling to preach, to lead, to serve in ordained ministry. 
Her journey to ordained ministry has included resistance on many sides, even in a denomination like the Wesleyan Church, and yet she persevered, and I'm thankful, we can all be thankful that she persevered in spite of it because Table Church would not be remotely what it is today if it even would exist had she not. Our staff is a mixture of men and women, and I wouldn't want it any other way because God's vision for the church is for all people to be empowered to serve the body according to the gifts that God has given them. And when that happens, we all win. Mutual ministry is a win for all of us. That's the kind of church that I want my daughters and son to be raised in. When we teach about this topic, like I said already, it can evoke big emotions. But one of the things that often happens is that a woman may hear this. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe there was even a time in your life where you thought, oh, maybe I'm I could be called, maybe I'm called to ministry. Maybe I should, should do this. Maybe this is something God has for me. But you're told you can't. And then you come here, somebody like me, in 30 minutes, kind of blast through all the stuff I just did, and it's like, whoa, where, where does that leave me? What, what do I even think about this? And maybe it evokes anger. Maybe it evokes sadness. Maybe it evokes excitement. I don't know. But listen, all I want to say is that for anyone who's, going, who's kind of thinking through that stuff, you know, we'd love to talk. But the bottom line of this message is, I hope that we can be a church. If you, I don't care if you're a man or a woman right now, if you are sitting on the sidelines in ministry, in life, in whatever it is that God has you, has for you. And look, I've, I've used the phrase ordained ministry a few times today because there's a particular connotation with that. That's not really what matters. What matters is, are we doing the things that God has called us to do? Are we exercising our gifts for the sake of the body, for the sake of the, the world? That's what matters. And so if you're sitting on the sidelines today, What'd you get in the game? Say, God, what is it that you have for me? How is it that you want me to, to serve your body right now, your kingdom, your, your church, and your, your world? Because Table Church needs you. We need you. If you'd like to have a conversation of what that might look like, let us know on your connection card, then we'll be in touch. But our vision for Table Church is that we'd be a thriving church because all of us are discerning what God has for us, the gifts that he's given us and the things he's called us to do and that we are courageously pursuing that calling. We believe that we need both men and women working together in all levels of church leadership in order to have a healthy church. And the key is that everyone must pursue the Lord and serve as God has enabled them. Then and only then will we experience the proper functioning of the body of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I submit to you everything I've said. I ask that you would take it and, I don't know, wrap it up, put a little bow on it, do whatever it is you need to do with it in order to package it in such a way that, Lord, it would accomplish your purposes today. Because everything I say and do is far from perfect. But everything you do is perfect. So let this be an act of yours, not of mine. Holy Spirit, blow through Table Church. Equip us, empower us, embolden us to be ministers. Every single one of us, Lord, ministers of your gospel. Called to go out and share with the world the truth and the hope that comes only through you. And that's something that defies all categories. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your strong name.